Hey everybody, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 105. Today is part two of my interview with best-selling author Donald Robertson. Donald is the author of one of my favorite books of all time, titled How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Donald and I continue our discussion on Stoic philosophy and Marcus Aurelius and his journal, The Meditations. Donald speaks about why it's so relevant in today's world. We also get into other ancient philosophers like Epictetus, Seneca, Socrates. It's a fun conversation with a ton of ancient wisdom that is relevant to today's world. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button or share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy part two of my interview with best-selling author Donald Robertson as he discusses Stoic philosophy and his killer book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And remember, life is built, not born. You mentioned Seneca. How about this question? Uh Why do you think Marcus does not quote or mention Seneca in his writings? What's your thoughts there? Well, one answer is that, so we should explain, we should back up a little bit and explain that I'm tempted to go deep into the history here, but basically most educated Romans were bilingual in Greek and Latin. So Latin was the language of the Roman Empire, but the Romans had conquered Hellenistic kingdoms or empires that were founded by the successors of Alexander the Great and spoke Greek. Like, and so many people in the Roman Empire spoke Greek, including Marcus's mother, who was very fluent for some reason. Maybe her ancestors had been Greek, but Marcus's mother, Domitia Lucilla, was a highly educated, very wealthy, powerful woman who was completely fluent in Greek. And so Marcus was also very fluent uh, in Greek and wrote the meditations in Greek because Greek was generally considered to be the language uh, the technical language of philosophy, even uh, in the Roman Empire. Some philosophy was written in Latin. Cicero instigated attempts to write philosophy in Latin, and Seneca also wrote philosophy in Latin, but that was relatively unusual. Like, so normally it was uh, written in Greek. Now, you might think, your question was, why doesn't Marcus mention Seneca? Scholars believe there's a kind of slightly puzzling phenomenon whereby authors that write in Greek don't seem to often mention authors that write in Latin. So it's just some maybe some kind of cultural thing. For some reason, they, they tend not to. Although I don't think that that's the main explanation. We know you might think maybe Marcus hadn't read Seneca, but actually we know that he had because we have his private letters as well as the meditations. We have a cache of his private letters. And in his private letters to his Latin rhetoric tutor, Fronto, Fronto talks to him about the fact that Marcus has been reading Seneca. Annoyingly, we don't see Marcus's replies. Like, but Fronto is saying, you remember that thing from Seneca you were reading and stuff like that. So it's, it's clear that Marcus had been reading Seneca, but he doesn't mention him. And you could go further and say, but Donald, Epictetus doesn't mention Seneca either, and neither does Masonius Rufus, who's the other uh, Roman Stoic that we have some uh, speeches and 
uh, ratings from. In fact, none, none of them mentioned Seneca. Now, I believe that the reason for that is that they didn't like him, like to put it crudely. And the reason that they didn't like Seneca, and it was common uh, thing in Roman society to kind of punish somebody by damnatio memoriae, which means like that you basically erase them from history. You just never mention their name again. And uh, so I think the problem with Seneca was that he was the kind of right-hand man to Emperor Nero mm-hmm. at a time when Nero was being opposed by a faction of Stoic philosophers on the Senate called the Stoic Opposition, re- led by a guy called Thrasea. And uh, Nero had Thrasea executed. And reputedly, one historian, Cassius Dio, tells us that Thrasea said some of us resisted Nero, other people collaborated with Nero. Like the names of the people that collaborated with Nero should never be mentioned again, except to point out that despite collaborating with him, they ended up being executed anyway. So to highlight the futility of their actions. And he doesn't say who he's talking about, but I think it's pretty clear that he's talking about Seneca. Like, And so if Thrasea did say, let's wipe out Seneca's name and never mention him again because he's, you know, uh, he's an embarrassment. That would explain why none of the other subsequent Stoics mention him. I always found that so fascinating where Seneca is so quotable, like letters of a Stoic. If you're one to highlight a book, you that's like a five highlighter book. Like there's certain lines in there that just hit you right between the eyes when he speaks. Like that one quote we mentioned earlier, we suffer more than more in imagination than reality, or even something like something that sounds like from out of the Bible, wherever there's a human being, there's an opportunity for kindness. Like some of the words he says is just like, wow, that is so profound. But then you have someone like a Marcus Aurelius who totally ignores him in his writings. Seneca is such a great writer and like so smart. And then, but then he was around Nero so much, and well, it's just yeah, it's just a questionable character, I guess to say the least. I mean, do you want me to talk a little bit about that for a moment? Because I think it's fascinating, kind of controversial area as well. And it's easy. In some ways, it's easy to explain this kind of disparity. So, first of all, I think everyone should read Seneca. Seneca's writings are amazing, and they survive throughout like the centuries. Shakespeare read, we believe, read Seneca's tragedies. He also wrote tragedies as well as uh, philosophy. There's a recent movie in which Seneca is played by John Malkovich, incidentally, and that I think everybody should watch. But they might be surprised when they do watch it because it portrays Seneca more based on the Roman histories. And there's a big disparity between the way that Seneca is described in the Roman histories and the way that he comes across in his own writings. Fronto says to Marcus at one point that looking for perils of wisdom in Seneca's writings would be like grubbing around on your hands and knees in the bottom of a sewer trying to find silver coins in the filth, <laughs> which is only a rhetorician could come up with what the kids today call a sick burn, like uh, an insult, like as, as shocking as, as that. But what, the, what on earth does he mean by that? Now, most people would say that's not the Seneca we know and love. Like his letters to Lucilius and his, his other uh, letters and dialogues are moving and profound and insightful. However, Seneca wrote other things. 
Like he wrote many political speeches on behalf of Nero. And we don't have most of the other things that he wrote. So we, we may assume that Marcus and Epictetus and uh, Fronto had read other stuff, more political stuff by Seneca. Maybe that's what they have in mind rather than just his Stoic text. But we do get a flavour of it because we have a kind of satire written by Seneca called uh, The Pumpinification. And we also have a letter called On Clemency, which is a kind of open letter addressed to Nero. And On Clemency has some really profound philosophical stuff in it, but it also says that Nero is virtually a philosopher king and that his hands are unstained by blood, despite the fact that he'd recently uh, murdered his 14-year-old younger brother like, and went on to murder his mother and lots of other people, right? So I think the Senate would have thought, Seneca writes for this very beautifully, and there's a lot of philosophical pearls of wisdom in it, but it's intertwined with really sus suspect political propaganda that, that's also shocking like, in terms of the way that it's attempting to portray Nero as this faultless philosopher king. And that, I think, is what would have offended Fronto, maybe Marcus and Epictetus and other people. He was using philosophy at times for propaganda. The other thing I'd say about Seneca was that some of the philosophers that we know and love were professional philosophy professors, teachers. Seneca wasn't. Seneca was originally a, a legal advocate, and then he had a failed legal career. Uh, he was exiled. He became famous as a writer. Publishing Rome wasn't anything like publishing today. He probably just circulated his uh, books among friends, but he became nevertheless famous, a celebrity as a, a writer, and then was appointed as the rhetoric tutor. He wasn't a professor of rhetoric. His father was. He became a rhetoric tutor to the Emperor Nero. Um, and so what you have to bear in mind about Seneca was that he's, his success and his fame were based on his writing ability. He was a celebrated uh, author and a social climber. And so when you read his letters, he is constructing a public image for himself in those letters. And you bear in mind that when you see how different that image is from the images that comes from the Roman histories, you have to, I think, ask yourself whether it's different because Seneca is very carefully and very successfully, very artfully in those letters, trying to make himself come across is very wise and temperate. For instance, in his letters, he never mentions the fact that he worked as an advisor to Nero. He he gives us other little insights into his daily life. Um, he talks about fasting and things like that. He doesn't really say much about the fact that he owned three massive estates with hundreds of slaves working on them. Like So he leaves out details that would have portrayed him as a wealthy, fat cat, Roman senator and a social climber and all this kind of stuff, and includes little nuggets of details that make him seem like quite an austere, temperate philosopher and a, a moderating influence. But that's that's his version of events, right? um, and it's probably self-serving in some ways. Although, without having a time machine, we can't go back and you know be absolutely certain. I'd love to think Seneca is the way that he describes himself in his letters, but I, I think the evidence suggests that there's an element of 
constructing his own legend in public image and in those writings. And that I think that's why the other authors don't really mention him. And the other thing, and I apologise to people that are fans of Seneca if this seems like a harsh criticism of him, but I think it has to be said that why what would be another reason why Marcus and none of the other Stoics would make, would quote Seneca might be if they felt that a lot of, like most ancient philosophers were not that original. They often are just recycling ideas that are in wide circulation. And we can see, for example, there are passages in Marcus Aurelius that are very similar to passages that are in Seneca. So it might be that they read Seneca and they thought, this is really profound, it's moving, it's creating deep stuff. But they thought, but it, a lot of it is to be found in other books that are already circulating. So they may have thought, what's unique about Seneca isn't like, you know, this stuff. It's the political angle that he kind of brings into it. That's a bit that we don't like. Um, because they don't like the only the other hint that we get from Marcus is Marcus mentions Nero, and like most Romans of his generation, he saw Nero as a complete degenerate, and that's as close as he gets in the meditations to commenting on Seneca. For mm. him, Nero is just an example of someone who's bestial and lacks any self control, and yet he was uh, that was Seneca's protege and uh, and student, and and Seneca defended him. Uh, repeatedly in the Senate and propped up his his rule. So I, I think Epictetus also maybe implicitly comments on Seneca because Epictetus repeatedly warns his students not to like flatter tyrants. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Epictetus is very blunt and very outspoken and unafraid of powerful individuals is how he comes across. And it's impossible to imagine Seneca uh, it, it's impossible to imagine Epictetus having written something like Seneca's on clemency right, that seems to kind of suck up to a political tyrant. I think Epictetus would have said to his students, don't ever do what Seneca did and accept lots of money from, you know, to, you'll end up regretting it. Like you'll end up beholden like to, to somebody that, that's corrupt. Epictetus, he was a slave in Nero's yeah. court, from my understanding. And is there any. Well, first of all, could you explain who he was and why he's so important? And is there any proof that Seneca and Epictetus ever met? There's no reason to believe that they ever met, but they came very close. So we say Epictetus lived in relative poverty, it seems, and he was a slave. Although slaves in the Roman Empire did many different types of jobs. And I think there are clues in Epictetus's writing that he worked as a scribe. Uh, when he was a slave, he had a kind of relatively privileged status as a slave. It's not like he was working in a coal mine or something like that. He was owned by the Emperor Nero's Greek secretary, a guy called Epaphroditus. So he lived in the house of a very wealthy elite Roman. And Epaphroditus crops up somewhere else in history. He was the guy who basically instigated accusations that led to Seneca being executed. So he was involved in Nero's execution. He told Nero that Seneca was involved in a conspiracy against him, and that was the excuse that Nero used or the reason that he used to execute Seneca. So there was all this kind of political intrigue. Epaphroditus was at the heart of it. Seneca was at the heart of it. And Epictetus perhaps had a ringside seat 
or certainly, you know, he was an epiphrodit as his household. And he was pretty, probably pretty close to a lot of the corruption that went on in the court of Nero. Epictetus was subsequently freed and went on to become, I would argue, some might disagree, the most influential teacher of philosophy in Roman history, which is amazing given that he was formerly a slave. And one thing that's very striking is that Marcus Aurelius, you said he doesn't mention Seneca, Marcus Aurelius seems to, I, actually I would go as far as to say that Marcus Aurelius idolizes Epictetus. There's a point at which Marcus Aurelius mentions three great philosophers, Socrates, Chrysippus, and Epictetus. Chrysippus was the third head of the Stoic school. I mentioned him a moment ago. He's the most prolific early Stoic writer. Socrates had died about 550 years before Marcus Aurelius was writing. So if you pause for a moment and think about that, that would be like comparing a contemporary... Marcus is saying, yeah, some of my favourite philosophers are Epictetus and Socrates. That would be like saying uh, two of my favourite writers are some contemporary writer in Shakespeare. Like So Marcus is putting Epictetus, despite the fact that he their lives overlapped, although they didn't they were in different countries. Epictetus was in Greece. He died when Marcus probably was about 14 at, and at Rome, so they didn't meet each other. But Marcus is putting Epictetus up there with the most famous philosopher in history. And a, a, to him, he would have been a, a historical figure. Like That's quite remarkable. Like He clearly idolises this guy. And he mentions him, he quotes him more often than he does any other philosopher in the meditations. And I don't know why I get to digress too much into the history, but I just mentioned in passing yeah. that I think it's it's fairly safe to assume that Marcus would have met many, a number of people, let's say, who, who did know Epictetus because mm -hmm. their lives were so close, although they never met. And uh, he says that one of the most important events in his life was when his main Stoic tutor, a guy called Junius Rusticus, gave him from his private collection, a set of notes, which we assume are the discourses of Epictetus. And uh, it may be that those notes weren't public in the public domain at that time. Marcus may be implying that. So if you can imagine, Marcus is a young guy that's been into philosophy for a few years. It's kind of his obsession. This incredibly important philosopher who'd been exiled dies. You don't get a chance to meet him. He never wrote anything, Epictetus. Mm -hmm. And then Marcus thinks, that's it. I, I'm, I'm never going to get a chance to to hear that guy. You know, if, I'd, uh, if he'd lived a bit longer, I would have travelled to Greece. I'd love to have gone and seen him. But it's all gone now. His voice is gone from history forever. And then a, year, a few years later, his tutor beckoning him in and saying, I've got something to show you. Like, here's a, a whole case full of scrolls written down by this guy called Ariane. It's a record of, it would be like you, there were a band that you thought were amazing, mm -hmm. but you'd never had a chance to see them live and they never made any recordings. And then one day somebody gives you a case full of bootleg recordings of their concerts. It must have blown wow. his mind. Wow. And it's no surprise then he 
became dedicated to studying that. I mean, I, I we're not sure that's what happened, but that's one way of, of reading uh, the evidence. Certainly, Marcus is pretty much a, a devotee or a follower of Epictetus's branch of, of Stoicism. And the, you know, maybe a, an interesting bit of trivia that people might not know, especially if they've just read a few books on Stoicism. Stoicism survived for 500 years. It split into three branches, we're told. One author tells us there were three branches of Stoicism by Marcus's time. And they were associated with the three last heads of the Stoic school. They had uh, they they had their own branches, and we don't know which group, which branch, different people followed. But I think it's fairly safe to say that Marcus is mainly following Epictetus. Epictetus is into a form of Stoicism that is very uh, that idolizes Socrates, and also Diogenes the Cynic. So it's kind of old school stoicism that Epictetus seems to be into, and a, a type of stoicism that's closer to the very austere Cynic philosophy. Whereas Seneca, there's definitely a different flavor to his stoicism, and I would say it looks like he's following a different branch of stoicism from Epictetus, and one that's more kind of urbane and more influenced by Platonism and Aristotelianism and probably what we call the middle story. Thank you for sharing that. just want to transition over to your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Of all that we mentioned, the three big Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and Epictetus, and when you mentioned Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, how did you decide when you wanted to write this book, how did you pick Marcus of all the great characters that you could have drawn from? Yes. First of all, I thought, well, who would be a good person to take as a kind of Stoic role model? I was asked by my publisher to write a kind of introductory book on Stoicism. And I thought, well, I can't because I've already written one. And, and loads of people are writing introductory books on Stoicism. So I like to think in a situation like that, I think, is there a way that I can say yes and no in answer to this question? So I thought, can I write an introductory book about Stoicism, but in a different way? Mm -hmm. like, and I thought, well, how could I? And I thought, well, one way to do it would be to write a book that focuses on the life of a, a real historical story as a kind of role model or an example. And I thought, would that be a good idea? And I thought, yeah. Then I thought, yeah, the, the ancient Stoics say that the best way to learn Stoicism is by looking at concrete examples of what how people put the philosophy into practice. So they would probably favour this way of uh, teaching the philosophy. And so I thought, well, Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, we know some interesting anecdotes about him. But as you go further back in history, anecdotes and evidence becomes less reliable. Uh, there's more contradictions. There's less material usually to go on. So I thought there isn't quite enough for a whole book uh, about Zeno. And then I thought, well, who's the, rather than the first Stoic, who's the most famous Stoic? Marcus Aurelius. Rather than the first Stoic, maybe if I look at the last Stoic of antiquity, the last famous Stoic of antiquity. And of course, there's way more evidence about Marcus's life because he was a Roman emperor. We have many statues and inscriptions, we have his private letters, and we have the meditations actually recording his own internal thoughts. He we have three main histories of his reign, and then lots of other fragments and other histories and other books referring to him. We even have a record of his legal 
rescripts, his, his legislative action that gives us some insight into his reign. And also because he was Roman emperor, any, any other books that describe the events of his reign potentially indirectly shed light on, on his behaviour, his conduct as emperor and the sort of world in which he lived. So that's why I chose to, to write about Marcus Aurelius. There was more material to work with. And also he's a good example. I think it would be hard to write a book like that about Seneca unless you really made an effort to cast him in a favourable light. You, you'd have to at least acknowledge that there are a number of questions about Seneca's uh, moral character. And then I, I feel like that would perhaps spoil the... Uh, the effect of trying to focus on him as a, a role model, maybe. Epictetus, one of the features of being a slave in the ancient world is usually the people have, there's less record of your life. Mm -hmm. um, so we know virtually nothing about Epictetus, not even in a sense his name, because Epictetus means acquired, and it, it has the look of a kind of nickname, perhaps, so we're not even uh, there's there's some ambiguity even even about his name. So we we don't know very much more than I've mentioned already uh, about his life, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, so Marcus, it was easier to to write about, and he's a uh, uh, always been regarded as a role model, even during his lifetime. The Romans saw him as uh, an exceptionally good emperor, so he he serves quite well. Uh, as an example of stoicism put into practice. One of the things I loved about the book, three things that stand out to me. One, you start out at the end with the dead emperor. You kind of tell the story yeah. of Marcus Aurelius's death, which is just awesome. And then you end it with like a, it's called death view from above. And you kind of speak to how the plague came to from the East and did, how did you get some of that material? Is that something, is that at the very end, was that, uh, is, was that some creative writing? There was some, there was some information you had, like what he was thinking at the time. How did you, how did you go about writing that chapter? I found that last chapter fascinating. Well, I wanted to tell the story of his life in chronological order. And then when you write, um, you know, often it's like you, you have a plan or a hypothesis and then you encounter a problem. It's, but there's a lot of problem solving in writing. So I thought, okay, um, my plan was I'm going to write a book about Marcus Aurelius in chronological order, and then I'll have my first problem, which is at the beginning of his life, there's not going to be as much philosophy because he's a kid. So in the, the beginning of his life is less dramatic, so it's not going to be as engaging for the, the reader, although it's interesting in some ways. In fact, we know about his education, so it's almost a bit like a, in a movie, a training montage. You think, but that can't be the opening scene. Yeah. Like, you know, we need to kind of work towards that. And then we have this kind of transition for this training montage, like how does he kind of get there? So I guess in terms of structuring a narrative, it didn't really work. And I thought, well, how am I going to do this in chronological order then if I don't want to begin with his childhood and his education? And I thought, well, the other way to do it is to create a framing story. The framing story could be his death. Like paradoxically, we begin at the end and describe his death. And then in the next chapter, we can go back to his childhood. And now that becomes more meaningful in terms of the philosophy, because we've done a kind of deep dive into some aspects of the philosophy in the first chapter. And then when we go back and talk about his childhood and his education, we can go, now we're seeing how he got there like, and how he learned that. So there's more of a direction to it. 
And then that created another problem for me because I thought, okay, if I have the framing stories as death and then we uh, go through everything in chronological order, we get to the end of his life. I'm a, I can't just like uh, end it there. I need to conclude somehow. But I can't tell the story of his death again because he's, he's already died in the first chapter. Right? So how am I going to end this book? Yeah. And I thought, well, again, what if the answer is yes or no? Like, what if maybe I can tell the story of his death, but I do it differently? I thought, well, how am I going to do that? And the one easy way of doing that would be to tell it from a different perspective. And so I thought, well, what about his perspective? Like, we have the perspective of the histories, and then we have his perspective we mainly have from the meditations, but he wrote the meditations years before he died. So I nevertheless thought it was reasonable to hypothesize that the thoughts that Marcus Aurelius, I thought, what would Marcus Aurelius be thinking when he was dying? And I thought, well, he's already told us several years earlier what his attitude towards life and death are in the meditations. He's rehearsing dying. So what if we were to assume that the thoughts that he rehearsed having about dying were the thoughts that he then had as he was dying. Seems reasonable. And so we tell the story from his perspective. So some people said, where does the content come from? It's mainly um, consists of paraphrases and quotes from the meditations that are reorganized thematically in that final chapter. And some of it is like a bit of a deep dive based on reading the original Greek and you mm-hmm. know maybe paraphrasing it slightly, but most of it is based... I think actually there's one or two quotes from Seneca in there as well, like, but it's, most of it is just uh, paraphrased from the meditations. It was well done how you tied that together. In doing some research for this interview, I saw that uh, you mentioned the one thing I, I just, it comes through through the whole book is you take very complex or ancient subjects or, or topics and you make them very relatable. And, and I don't say you simplify them, but you bring them to their essence. And I saw in some interview that when you were writing the book, you said, could you explain it to your young daughter, Poppy? Is that, yeah. is that fair to say? I saw, read that somewhere. Yeah, I did explain it to her. And now, I mean, she's 11 now, but I think. I started talking to her about philosophy and telling her stories about it when she was about five or six or maybe even younger. So it started with very, very simple things. But I found that here's a slight uh, aside, but I think it's important. When we think about philosophy today, how is it communicated in books, lectures, seminars? Maybe some people are aware that there used to be philosophical dialogues, like those written by Plato. We don't really have many dialogues today, but that was a genre of literature in the ancient world that philosophy was communicated in. But there's another genre of literature which many people derive philosophy from. In fact, there are several. So many people learned philosophical ideas in the ancient world from poetry, from biographies like Plutarch's lives, mm-hmm. from anecdotes, like a book by Diogenes Laertius called The Lives and uh, Opinions of Eminent Philosophers. It's full of little anecdotes about philosophers. And also from satires, like from comedies, people uh, learned anecdotes uh, about philosophy. So the uh, probably our best source in this regard is Diogenes Laertius. It's got lots of little anecdotes um, about 
things that philosophers said and did. And you you can teach those to children in some cases. You know, there are like simple little things that the fame the most famous example is really easy. It's a cliche. Diogenes the Cynic mm-hmm. is a guy who we don't have any writings from. He's one of the most ancient, famous philosophers of the ancient world, but we know of him almost entirely through anecdotes about his life. And the famous one is that Alexander the Great came to visit him once, and Diogenes lived in a big ceramic jar <laughs> uh, called a pithos, and he went about naked and he lived like a beggar. And Alexander the Great was the most powerful man in the known world. And Alexander went to see Diogenes, and he said, is there anything I can do for you? You know, because kings would often bestow gifts on people, and this is how uh, the relationships were formed and worked. And uh, Diogenes said, yes, can you step aside? You're blocking my son. (laughs) So he basically said, I don't want anything from you. And he wanted uh, to get back to nature. Like, that was what he he prized. The best things in life are free, um, Diogenes might have said. So... That's just an anecdote that even a child can enjoy and maybe reflect on it in different levels and ask questions about. Um, But that was how philosophy was passed down in the ancient world to a large extent. A little bit like, you know, in the Eastern tradition, we have these little Buddhist anecdotes. So, you know, there's a story about a Buddhist monk, like people like to say. And we have similar little anecdotes and stories about Greek philosophers. But people don't talk about them as much today for some reason. But uh, every student of ancient philosophy knows about this stuff. And you realize, yeah, that that these are things that you could, stories you could tell to children and they would be able to understand. My, I'll tell you my favorite one. It's at the beginning of my book. And I told this to my daughter yeah. and she, she used to ask me about it. So there's a story that the Roman general Xenophon was walking down an alleyway late at night in the Agora uh, in Athens, the city centre, and someone was standing in the shadows and they held out a staff and blocked his way. Um, And so Xenophon said, can I help you to the stranger? And the stranger said, yes, can you tell me where someone would go if they want to acquire goods, like jewellery and fine clothing and things like that? And Xenophon said, this seems like a ridiculous question because we're right next to the Agora and it's full of uh, riches from all over the world that merchants have brought to Athens. And so Xenophon said, well, right next to this market, like you can buy anything in the Athenian Agora. And the stranger said, indeed. And then he asked him another question. He said, but where would someone go if they wanted not to acquire goods, but to become a good person? And Xenophon had now very rapidly gone from thinking this is an easy question to thinking this is a really confusing and difficult question. And he thought, I don't know where someone, I can't, I, suddenly I can't answer you. I, I, I don't know where someone would go if they want to become a good person. And the individual in the shadows lowered his staff and he walked out into the light and he introduced himself as Socrates. <laughs> and he said, don't you think it's more important far more important, infinitely more important, to know how to become a good person than it is to know where to acquire everyday goods um, or precious goods. And Xenophon said, I guess so. And Socrates said, well, why don't you come with me and we'll discuss uh, the nature of goodness and wisdom together and we'll see if we can figure it out. And Xenophon became a devoted follower of Socrates 
for the rest of his life, uh, and so much so that we have a book that survives today written by him called The Memorabilia Socrates, which basically means all the stuff I remember that Socrates said. And uh, I told that story to my little girl, and she said, tell me it again. And I must have told it to her about 10 times, you know, because uh, that's how philosophy was taught in the ancient world. Not always, but in many cases. It wasn't from long, boring, dry, abstract, theoretical books. It was often through these little, similar to the anecdotes you get in the Buddhist uh, tradition and Taoism, little anecdotes that people could just kind of chew over and think about. Thank you for sharing that. Wrapping up here, transfer to a quick part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets. So, Donald, all the stuff you've got on your books and your courses and all your writing, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? What do I do when I want to clear my mind and recharge my body? I usually have cold showers, which I find is a lot easier to do. And I spend some of my time in Greece. I find it's okay. easier to, to do that than in the winter in Montreal. Okay. <laughs> uh, the cold, cold, shower, cold showers in Montreal are much colder. A little different. Like, yeah, a little bit of a different experience. And, you know, I like to go and I'll walk around the park. I live beside the park. So I'll go and I'll walk in the park or in Greece. I'll walk around the ruins and things. Wow. Um, and to recharge physically, I fast. I do intermittent fasting. Like, and if I feel like, uh, you know, uh, I've not been as healthy, you know, for a while, or Something you know to to try and reset physically. I'll do. Yeah. How many fasting. hours do you go when you intermittent fast? How many hours do you go? Three days. Whoa! I feel good with sixteen hours. You're going three days. Oh my god! I go three I'm, days. I'm, wow! What's I, that I, like? I would say some people fast longer, some people less. So you know, I think that's partly just down to your constitution. I don't get that hungry. Okay. I, I I find there's certain things in life that I'm, rub I'm rubbish at languages. Okay. But I persevere. I try, but I'm good at fast. I don't. I don't really feel that hungry, and I can go, you know, quite a long time with it. I guess I've got a slow metabolism or something. Um, so fasting is pretty easy to me, and I find also much healthier. Like after I've done, it. I don't do that very often. When I, I used for many years, I did intermittent fasting, and I would fast for twenty four hours. Okay. And then one day, I realized that that wasn't really helping me that much. I felt when I. I did longer and less frequent fasts. I felt that I was getting much more benefit uh, from doing them. So usually I'll, 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 I won't bother fasting now unless I do it for about three days. Wow, that's so fascinating. I guess I shouldn't feel good about myself doing 16 hours. I'm ready to take a bow when I do 16. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. But for some people, that would be better, I guess. Like, I think it uh, depends on yourself. Um, you know, everyone needs to be their own physician in that regard. And you know, find out what works best for you. Sure. How about this? Most high achievers have a routine, either to start their day or end their day. Donald, what is your routine? Either the first 30 or 60 minutes of your day look like or, or the end of your day? What do you do? I think it varies a lot because of travel and things. And so and my routine tends to change. But when I sit down, I usually, if I'm right, I write most of the time. Okay. And when I'm writing, I'm usually working in the library. And what I normally do when I start work is pretty specific. I set a timer for 10 minutes and I do a meditation technique called the Benson method for 10 minutes. So every time I exhale, I count a number silently. I start from 10 and I count down to zero, one number on each breath, and then I 
count again. I do that for 10 minutes. And then I'll do for 10 minutes kind of cognitive exercise where I'll, like in the Socratic method, I'll come up with a definition of a concept like justice. And then I'll try to think of exceptions to my definition, like brainstorming them. Or I'll think of a statement and then brainstorm evidence for and against it. Something like that. I'll do a kind of brainstorming cognitive exercise for 10 minutes. And then I'll, for 10 minutes, I tend to visualize a conversation. So I'll shut my eyes. And usually, because I'm writing a book about Socrates at the moment, I'll visualize that I'm having a conversation with Socrates. And sometimes he doesn't say that much, mm-hmm. but sometimes he says quite a lot of things. And I usually shake his hand. But, you know, so for a long time, he thought that was pretty weird. Like, because I don't think it's a thing in ancient Greece, but like he's kind of got used to it now. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll talk to, I'll talk to Socrates. And he's, I notice he's far less concerned with historical accuracy. So often I'll say, Socrates, did this conversation, did this thing really happen? And what year was it when this happened? And he's kind of like, why would you even care about that? So he doesn't, he's not, he's not very bothered about historical accuracy. He's more <laughs> kind of interested in the, the you know, uh, getting the, the philosophical point across usually. Yeah. But I'll, I'll say, you know, what did you mean when you said this? And, and what's the best way to explain this concept? And I might have this imaginary conversation. And so I do these three things. So I do the Benson method and then I open my eyes and I spend ten, each of them is 10 minutes. And then I do a little, so half an hour in total, do a little co- kind of Socratic cognitive exercise. And then I do this visualized conversation. Wow. How about you mentioned the book you're writing now? As you look out to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? Well, I'm also the president. I'm one of the founders of the non profit modern stoicism and i'm also the president and founder of the plato's academy center which is a non-profit that we incorporated in greece just over a year ago and its goal is to fundraise to create conference center at the original location of plato's academy or near it um, in athens and we run virtual events to raise awareness and do fundraising with philosophers, authors, academics from all over the world speaking online conferences about philosophy. And so that's the project I'm most excited about because the suburb where Plato's Academy is located is a very poor part of Athens. It's quite run down, kind of derelict in parts. And so I think it's an opportunity for urban renewal. We want to bring foreign revenue and investment back into that suburb so it can help improve things and also to bring philosophy back i'm doing another event there in march in the park among the ruins where we'll have philosophers talking to people and to be standing where plato once walked and socrates once walked and zeno the founder of stoicism for 10 years was a student there so you can walk among the trees and think literally plato stood here reading from the republic and we are here today talking about that in the same spot, basically. It is quite a profound experience, I think. Wow, that's phenomenal. How about what's your next book? It's about Socrates. It's going to be a bit like, uh, oh, actually, well, the funny thing about publishing is, you know, it, it moves very slowly sometimes. And so I'm all, uh, you end up being a little bit out of sync if you're an author. So the most recent book I brought out 
with Verismus as the, the graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius. Although to me, that's like something I wrote years ago. Mm-hmm. And the next book that I have coming out is a biography of Marcus Aurelius for Yale University Press's Ancient Life's series, which that should come out next spring. Although that's also kind of old to me because I've I finished that a while back. And the book I'm in the middle of writing, which probably won't come out for about another two years, is it's like how to think of Roman Emperor, but it's about Socrates. Awesome. That is fantastic. How about this? We spoke about so much, Donald, the last hour. Donald, if you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? Someone asked me recently what the main thing they thought we should teach to kids is, and there's lots of answers you could potentially give. I think the main thing is the argument that's in Plato's dialogue, the Euthydemus, which I believe is the foundation of Stoic philosophy. Socrates says to his friend, how would you define good fortune? So Socrates usually asks a question that seems really obvious, like with Xenophon, you know, where can you buy goods? Seems like an easy question. And then he turns it into something that's more challenging. So he says, how would you define good fortune? And this guy says, well, having lots of money, having a big house, having lots of friends, having an important job, stuff like that, being healthy. That's what good fortune is, isn't it? It's kind of obvious, right? And Socrates says, oh, yeah, like that makes sense. But hang on a minute. I can see how, let's start with wealth. I can see how that could be good if you took a big pile of money and you gave it to someone who was wise and virtuous. They could do lots of good things with it. But what would happen if you took a big pile of money and gave it to somebody who's foolish and vicious? Like, wouldn't it just allow them to do more foolish and vicious stuff? And his friend says, well, I guess you've got a point there. And Socrates says, so maybe money isn't good or bad in itself, but what matters is the use that you make of it. And his friend's like, yeah. And Socrates says, so the thing that's really good would actually be knowing how to use it well, like our wisdom, right? Um, and the money in itself is is neutral. And his friend agrees with him. And Socrates says, you know, as we say, like spoiler alert, the same is true of all of the other things that you mentioned. Like, so they're all external goods. They give you more advantages or control over your external environment. But whether they're actually good or not would depend on the use that you make of them. And so the idea that what appears to be good, like wealth and reputation, isn't necessarily good and maybe that wisdom uh, or moral character is more fundamentally important I think is the main thing that people should take away and the fact that that would turn upside down the prevailing values of western society we live in a consumerist society mm-hmm. that celebrates celebrity culture and all this kind of stuff it, you know even if we don't really our whole world revolves around materialism and hedonism and narcissism and you know all these kind of isms that define our society's values to a large extent and really genuinely seeing it differently would be uh, like a religious conversion it would be going swimming against the tide in a sense and that's what i'd like people to take away is that there is another way of looking at life which consists in holding a radically different set of values um that derive from socrates and the stoics and Greek philosophy in general, and place more value on what's going on inside us than on how other people see us or the possessions that we have. 
Yeah. And it can be done. And other people have thought and felt like that in the past. And that may be the secret to having a good life. Wow. That's powerful. Wrapping up here, Donald, we started speaking about that table you were sitting at when you were 10, 12 years old with your mom and dad and sister. If you could go back to that dinner table when you were 12 years old in Scotland, what would you want to tell your family? I was going to go back in time and, and speak to my family. I guess what I'd like to tell them is, you know, what what I just told you. I'd like to tell them that I was going to be a writer. Like, I guess at that time, you know, they wouldn't have known and that I was going to write about philosophy and teach people. And starting with my daughter, the things that we've been talking about today, particularly this idea that there's a whole different set of values that they don't teach you at school the you know i'd be teaching people about philosophy and i'd want them to know that that's what i was dedicating my life to that they'd help me to to get to that point that's great last two questions one two fun ones donald if you could spend a day with anyone historical figure family member alive or dead who would you want to spend the day with uh socrates I'm a bit biased because I'm writing a book about him at the moment. But I love Marcus Aurelius and Socrates are my two favorite characters. But Marcus Aurelius is a much more one dimensional mm -hmm. character. Socrates is just an infinitely more nuanced, complex, fascinating, like layers of an onion type guy. I definitely want to like, spend time talking to Socrates. Wow. That'd be a phenomenal day. Last question Donald Robertson, if you had to get a quote, or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? It would say, Uden de non peponthas, which is, I'm, fight, I'm playing with my cat while we talk, I hope you don't mind. Um, you might hear him, uh, which is what I have tattooed in my arm, actually. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> uh, you got I'm one already. What, what does that mean? Translated, what does that mean? It means nothing terrible has happened to you. And it's a quote from Diogenes Laetius, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And it's something that was said to Zeno, um, who was the founder of Stoicism. It's, I guess, one of the earliest Stoic ideas. It's, de it's what we call in cognitive therapy decatastrophizing. Okay. Um, like nothing, realize that. Nothing terrible has happened to you. Zeno had soup splashed all over him. Okay. And he, I guess he thought this was really embarrassing. The cynics would do this to prospective followers. Um, so Crates of Thebes, Zeno wanted to be his follower. He asked him to carry a bowl of soup around the Keramicus, which is this ancient graveyard in Athens, but it's also the pottery district and where the prostitutes worked as well. It's mm. a very busy area. And Zeno was embarrassed. He was kind of socially anxious. And he tried to hide it under his cloak, this bowl of soup. I think the connotation of this is a little bit lost, but it may have been that it made him look like he was a slave, mm -hmm. um, carrying or a beggar, carrying food around in, in public like that. It wasn't normal behavior. And Crates uh, saw that he was trying to hide the soup, and he smashed it with his staff and splashed it all over him, which I guess would have been pretty embarrassing. 
I guess all the prostitutes would have been laughing at him and, the, you know, the people buying pottery and stuff would have been laughing at him. And uh, so Zeno was freaking out and Crates said to him, Uden de non pepon fast, nothing terrible has happened to you. Like, I know that even though this feels really embarrassing, feels really awful, it's just soup. Like, it doesn't mean anything. Like, it's all, it's all in your mind. It's all in your mind. Wow. Nothing terrible has happened to you and it's actually on your arm. That is fantastic. As we speak. As yeah. we speak. <laughs> Donald Robertson, I'd like to thank you for joining us. It is an honor to speak with you. Uh, thank you for walking us through 500 years of Stoic philosophy and Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, your amazing book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Donald, if our listeners are looking for you and what you do online, where can we find you? Well, my website is just my name. It's Donald Robertson, all one word, dot name, N-A-M-E, instead of dot com. Mm -hmm. And so they can find me there. And on so I've got a big Substack newsletter. I just wrote an article called, Was Marcus Aurelius a Republican? And I mean a Roman Republican, not a member of the GOP, incidentally. Like, and so that that's uh, it harks back to the movie Gladiator. People think that Gladiator isn't historically accurate, and they be right. I'd be surprised if anyone thought the movie Gladiator was a historical documentary. But some of the things that seem to be not historical in it are actually inspired by real historical evidence. So there is a bit in the meditations where Marcus talks about how he really admires Stoic Republican thinkers. In that movie, they portray him saying that he's going to abolish the office of emperor and revert Rome back to being a, a republic. So that seems like something he couldn't possibly have said, but he does say things a bit like that in the meditation. So I wrote an article about it on Substack, and people might want to, to check that out if they're interested in the subject. I will put your website, the donaldrobertson.name, in your books, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, Verissimus. Uh, I'll put all your books into the show notes. Donald, such an honor to meet you and your cat. <laughs> I really appreciate you. Thank you for walking us through stoicism and uh, all your work. Much appreciated, sir. Oh, it's fun. You know, and it's, I get to talk about my hobby. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.